Hi, everybody. Welcome to Praise Dionysus. Praise him. Um, as you can hear me doing my own call and response, it is just me. Uh, J uh, <laughs> I am Jake. James is not here. Uh, I will explain why in a moment. Um, but in today's episode, um, we're going to be talking about Virginia at La Mama Theatre and The Crocodile by Spinning Plates Company. Thanks for being here. Uh, yeah, talk to you in just a second. Hey, hey, sweet listener. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. I, it's, it's, so it's just a me episode again, which I hope you're not super resentful about. Uh, James is in Sydney because of like gay stuff is happening there. Um, not some sort of rally. I guess I'm not going to look up the definition of what a rally is. I assume they're always up to mischief. I don't think he's committing mischief. It's all like the Mardi Gras stuff. So he was like one of the people that was walking across the Sydney Harbour Bridge the other day. He's up there with... Uh, someone named Flynn. I assume it's someone that he met on the plane up. Um, and yeah, so he's there. So it's just me here talking about theatre with you. But before that happens, I guess I will tell you about <laughs> my week and I will write it for you. I hope yours has been okay. I don't know how far, like, far apart you're listening to these episodes. <laughs> um, I'm going to stop guessing things about you. You don't deserve that. I, I feel like whenever it's just me doing these things, there's always like a very distinct, like a rather distinctly different tone to the entire thing. I, I don't know if that's a thing that makes you mad. It's a thing that I'm certainly self-conscious about. <laughs> um, because yeah, I very much don't want to be wasting your time or giving you something that, giving you something you don't want. You know, I don't want you wanting ham and then I, I give you a bunch of shoelaces. Um, but yeah, so I don't know. I, every time I sit down to do one of these ones by myself, I always think of like, where would be the, like the ideal setting for you to be like, you know, listening to it. And I don't know, thinking about that question just now, I suppose my answer for this episode would be, and I don't hope you're in this predicament, but if you are, maybe this is perfectly suited to your situation. You're like at the wake of a person that you know some pretty dark secrets about, but you're quack quack, but you're keeping those secrets to yourself in order to let them sort of like maintain some dignity while they're at rest. Um, not so, yeah, you, like you don't know where any bodies are buried, but you, you know some things that would make people cry a little bit less at this wake. Sorry that it's so dark, quack quack. It's, I didn't mean for it to be <laughs> such a miserable scenario, but I imagine that you're sort of like, you know, you've, you've distanced yourself. Um, let's make it not a wake. Let's just make it some sort of social event where you don't feel like you fit in, but you have to stay because you promised your housemate that you wouldn't leave too early. Um, so you've distanced yourself and you're listening to this in the corner somewhere. Um, anyway, sorry for bringing the mood down. I, <laughs> I, my week, my week, I, something that happened, I went and like, I outside eyed my, um, which I didn't realize wasn't a term that people knew, but a friend of mine needed me to explain that it's like when you go and watch someone's show that's like in development and you like sit there and you pretend to be an audience for them. And then you tell them about things that were working and weren't working in the show that, that you, that they're developing that you just saw. And so me and Blonde Haley and two other gals that were full-blown strangers to me, but seemed great, uh, went and saw my friend Shay. He's doing like a two-hander show with this lovely, really talented guy named Cameron. And yeah, they're doing a clown show that I think is currently in Newcastle now, or like about to be in Newcastle. So, so if you're in Newcastle, um, it's called The Red Light and it's, it's, it's like a clown show set in kind of like a, like almost like an impressionistic corporate space. Um, but yeah, and and as you know of me, very likely, and as I said to them before I started giving them any feedback about their impressive show, I don't really have much patience for clowning. For some reason, I am surrounded in my life by a number of passionate clowns. Um, Connor Dariol is saving up to go to France to study with old Goliere soon. So there are, there are clowns aplenty in my existence. Um, which is kind of a, you know, a sneeze in the face of the law of attraction, because it's not a thing that I'm asking for. I promise you that. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, that was a cool time. Um, it was nice to be back in the Bluestone Church in Footscray. I care about that venue a lot and have had a lot of very formative experiences inside of it. Um, I'd say it's probably definitely in my top five favorite churches. So if you are compiling that list, um, add that one in there. <laughs> Otherwise, I also went to my niece's first birthday party. Um, it was as dramatic as you have just assumed that it was. Um, one of the highlights, I guess, was I had this like very like out of nowhere, quite 
helpful conversation with a friend of my, so it was my cousin's sister's second child. Um, and a friend of hers whom I see whenever I go to an event as such, um, an event as such. Cool. Uh, <laughs> an event that she hosts because she's a good friend of this guy that I was talking to. He's great. And he's like a handful of years older than me, but it was just nice to, um, have a conversation with him about the idea of like, of course it, it being like a baby's birthday and him being quite willingly childless. Um, yeah, him just talking about his and his friend's experiences with the decision whether or not to have children and, and the desire to have children and being, you know, like, like a, a social collective of people that are living with the consequences of choosing to have a child and whether or not they could if they wanted to, like that type of thing. And it was nice to see someone just like a few more steps down the road of, you know, the chronology of existing um, amidst the consequences of those choices or those those facts. And yeah, it was just kind of like nice to hear spoken wisdom that I could align with my guesses, I guess, <laughs> um, was something. I definitely also just always feel like Maleficent around any sort of, when attending any kind of child event, um, I just lack those muscles in my heart to behave correctly in terms of ooing and ahhing. Um, I hope you cope better. <laughs> uh, yeah, otherwise, yeah, other stuff happened, but we needn't get into it because we can talk about theatre, which is vastly more interesting than anything that happened to me in the last seven days. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Um, if, you've, if you've made it this long, um, I hope the wake's going well. Um, and I hope those secrets aren't burning a hole too deeply inside of you. I suppose if I had to give my week a rating out of five, um, what am I going to do? I suppose, okay, I'm going to give it like, 12 and a half stars because I feel like that's the number of minutes I spent almost uninterrupted giving positive and I hope a helpful feedback to that that two-man clown show um I I hope all the best for them um they've got something with a lot of really cool potential anyway that means nothing to you because you weren't there unless you were one of those three girls that I was sitting next to <laughs> so, um yep I'll stop yammering and we can start talking about some theater Hey, so yeah, I went to La Mama HQ, not the courthouse, the HQ one, <laughs> and I went to see Virginia, which was written by Edna O'Brien and directed and designed by Nicholas Opolsky. Um, and yeah, and it's about Virginia Woolf. I went with Harry Hogan, wonderful woman and incredible lighting designer, um, Harry Hogan. Uh, we went there and we went inside. We were in the raffle. Of course, we didn't win the raffle. Praise Jesus. And Dionysus, praise him. We were standing like in, you know how there's like a little like decking thing outside at the HQ, like around the bar before you get shown into the theater. We were like standing there a bit and like talking about how much we know about Virginia Woolf. And I will relay to you what I'm, yeah, what I said to Harry about. I, I always think that I know more about Virginia Woolf and maybe I think I care more about her than perhaps I do. I don't know what actively caring about Virginia Woolf would look like. <laughs> so I'm not sure how fraudulent I'm being when I say that I care about Virginia. Uh, but I love To the Lighthouse. Like To the Lighthouse is one of my favorite books. Um, and beyond that, I think I certainly, because of how much I like the play Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, I think that I have a closer to, like, connection to her than I do. I don't, I, I watched The Hours, like, that movie, and this was, like, a lot, like, a bulk of what Harry and I were talking about on the decking, was what happened in The Hours, like, that movie that was largely most spoken about because of Nicole Kidman's fake nose that she used to portray Virginia Woolf in that movie. We, and I need to revisit it because I do want to answer these questions, but, <laughs> but instead I will just, for now at least, I will just relay to you the questions we had. Is it, so it's Nicole Kidman, Julianne Moore, and Meryl Streep, question mark. They are three separate timelines from what we could gather from our memory of both of us maybe having seen the full film. Nicole Kidman's Virginia Woolf, Julianne Moore is a contemporary depressed woman, and Meryl Streep is a fictional woman in a book written by Virginia Woolf, and all of them kill themselves. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's the current guess on the plot of the hours, which I assume is what you're doing here, <laughs> um, to hear about. Yeah. So, uh, that's that in terms of like my connection to her, of course, um, her being a queer person is fantastic. The fact that a woman, especially a queer one has managed to survive, you know, the, 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 I don't know, the, the cyclone of the passing of time, um, 
is great, of course, and the fact that a play about her exists on a Melbourne stage today is is great for a, you know, a cavalcade of reasons. Uh, yeah, so yeah, we were waiting there, the door flapped open. Oh, and while we were talking about not knowing enough about Virginia Woolf between the two of us, um, and Harry also re- reminded me of like, we, <laughs> we both knew that she killed herself. We couldn't remember how it happened. And then Harry's understanding was that she put a bunch of rocks in her pockets and then walked into a lake. <laughs> um, and this is when a stranger cut in and was like, oh, and here, here are the things that I know and care about in terms of Virginia Woolf. And then the three of us just sort of like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, we put together all of our guesses and our memories and our informations. And then we went inside to see Virginia. <laughs> uh, went in, sat down, show started. And kind of, yeah, so it began and then what, yeah, then the show turns out to be, so it's Heather Lithe playing Virginia, you know, titular Virginia, she's a wolf. She, yeah, starts talking to us. And then the show is, it kind of sort of has the energy, I guess, of like a one woman show in the way that it's like the text itself spends a lot of time having Virginia relaying to us things that happened in her life or things that are happening in her life in the, in the time period shown in the play and gives us an insight into the the beautiful way that she uses language and the turns of phrases that she has and she does a lot of I don't I don't know how to describe this but almost that like Oscar Wilde character way of talking maybe I'm just defining what wit is but the way of <laughs> hearing a person say something and then her almost just like reversing two of the nouns and then making a very sort of eloquent beautiful point um that kind of linguistic behavior uh, so it was cool to feel like you were kind of spending time with Virginia Woolf, which was nice. Uh, because again, I'm less familiar with her than I keep insisting to myself that I am. <laughs> uh, yeah. And then, so she also has like a sister and she has like this girlfriend that in, again, I tried not to do any research about this because as always, we try to come at these things as just taking from a show what it gives to us. Um, but, uh, so she has like a, a lesbian love affair sort of for like a second, um, it doesn't seem like it lasted for very long, uh, but it's substantial and seems to be based on conversations I've had with people since seeing the show. Uh, it's despite it being a very brief love affair that she had with a woman who I think that woman was also with a homosexual man in her marriage. The two of them, because Virginia Woolf also at the time was about to be or was married to her husband slash publisher. You're welcome for how clearly that was conveyed to you just now. So, <laughs> so these two women in heterosexual relationships were kind of having like hot lesbian picnics together. Um, and then on stage kissed once. Ooh. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, beyond that. Yeah. So that that's kind of what happened. And then we got up to the point of her killing herself. Um, we also got through World War Two, And I didn't realize that her house exploded in that war, which was like, a funky upsetting piece of trivia that her house exploded. I do have to bring up a couple of things. So, <laughs> um, the audience was certainly a character in this show, not on purpose, obviously. Well, not obviously, they could have been, but no, I think very, <laughs> yeah, I, um, that, that there was a lot of like, and James has come out staunchly against this. I'm more neutral about it, but even within my eyeline, there were two different people taking notes. I assume they were reviewers. And of course that's fine, <laughs> but it, it was certainly an element that was distracting <laughs> the, the amount of scribbly scrabbling that was going on. Um, that's something that I'd love you to have an opinion about in terms of whether or not it's appropriate to be, I don't know, taking notes at all during a piece of theater. If I ever see you at some sort of like drinks and nibbles mixer, please let me know your thoughts on it. <laughs> um, that was happening. There was also like, okay, so there's a part in the play where um, <laughs> where, where Virginia Woolf gets gift, you know, like famous author Virginia Woolf gets gifted a, a printing press. And then at like the moment after it happens, someone in the audience turns to the person beside them and then almost stage whispers. She goes, <laughs> she goes, they're gonna make books. <laughs> it's like, yeah, cunt. I think they probably are. <laughs> this is, it's Virginia Woolf. <laughs> um, and a similar ilk, again, as I've confessed to you, I don't know as much about Virgins as I wish I did, but also when she killed herself, so, like, it's conveyed through a note. Like the, the first time we hear about her having killed herself, it's through a note to her husband. Um, and as, as the line comes out via voiceover that she has killed herself, someone in the audience goes, oh, no, <laughs> it's like, again, <laughs> I feel like that's kind of 
a thing we all know that happened to her. <laughs> so I don't know whether or not this person came in totally blind. Maybe they thought it was going to be, I don't know, a historical documentary piece of theater about Virginia, the place. Um, whether or not they thought they were seeing the vagina monologues. I'm not super duper certain, but yeah, people <laughs> didn't know that she printed books or killed herself. No one was really gasping during the lesbian stuff. So maybe they were just, maybe that's all they knew. I don't know. Maybe I have to watch the hours. Maybe, maybe they really muddied the waters on the facts. <laughs> um, yeah. On top of that. Yeah. Again. Uh, yeah. The, the performances were all really like charming. It was really nice. Like this collection of people because it was just three people in the, in the show. It was like, cause it was Heather playing Virginia and then Beth Klein was playing her sister who functionally in the play. And maybe this is me being dismissive functionally in the play. The sister didn't do much beyond kind of like flutter down the stairs, say something kind of grumpy and then run away again and kind of always have marriage on her mind. But Beth also played Vita, who was like the, the, like the sassy lesbian with the gay husband. Again, some of these things I'm saying are guesses based on historical stupidity on my part. <laughs> uh, yep. Yeah. And then on top of that, Mark Opitz was playing very briefly played like a, a very grumpy father at the start. And then he, for the bulk of the play played Virginia's like love interest and husband and publisher. Um, I mean, he was really great. He was really interesting to watch. I, I found myself accidentally just staring at him for long periods of time, especially when it was like Virginia would be swept into, which a lot of what the text was, was like people talking to Virginia and then her kind of getting swept away in her own thoughts and then maybe like monologuing by the wall underneath like a nice blue light or something, you know? Like it was the kind of thing where we'd get pulled in and out of her mind and then she'd be in scenes. And I was very grateful that there were also like dramatic scenes that did just happen between her and like one or two other people, you know? It was nice to have, because as you know about, in terms of my stance of, I guess I don't, no, I don't have anything against, I'm skeptical about, but I'm nothing against the idea of like a one person performance storytelling thing. The thing I have a problem with is like that audiobook thing where we're talking about things as they're happening instead of actually experiencing them. So this gratefully very, like did not really ever settle into that version of telling a story like this, which was great, but it was nice to have dramatic scenes as well as sort of like very floral um, dynamic monologues. You know, I was grateful for that. It was it was nice to have a story that could have just been super duper Virginia centric, um, but instead provided like a, a, like so like, you know slightly more of the world and a few more of the voices that were surrounding her. Um, maybe partly too. I'm just sort of like thinking about this now. Honestly, the, the fact of like having those physical other people around her meant that it it tethered her more to. It tethered her more to, and this is kind of just based on conversations I've had about her with other people since seeing the show, I suppose. But having those physical presences around her talking to her, it kind of doesn't, and maybe this is editorializing, but it means that when experiencing her craziness, which people of the day and today looking back on her talk about maybe too much, more so than her like creativity and artistic genius, people dwell too much on like her craziness, which I'm putting up quotation mark bunny rabbits around, uh, but putting people alongside her means that this play doesn't become just about, because she has so much time in this play to talk about things and have thoughts and have, say words that make her sound potentially the type of crazy that people claim that she was. Having the people around her talking to her grounds her crazy <laughs> in the world of those people as well as her own. Like we aren't just swept into her mind and the play then doesn't become just a, a one woman sort of like somersault through her losing her mind but becomes a woman in the world that she was in having her own thoughts, but also still engaging with the world around her. I don't know. Maybe that's, I don't know. That's, that's something that I'm thinking about in your ears right now. Um, but yeah, but yeah, it was, it was cool to have that tether to her reality and have that tether be human um, as opposed to just like the furniture or something, you know? There was this uh, charming, <laughs> I sometimes feel like when I say charming, sometimes it sounds like I'm wanting to say something harsher than I am. No, this was like, I, I truly like this for how quintessentially theatrical it was. It, early on, there was like a few, it seemed like there were a few lines that weren't fully known yet. Like some of the, a few of the sentences weren't off book. And it was just really lovely to hear someone whispering lines to a performer at the, <laughs> towards the start of the show. It didn't really happen again for, throughout the rest of the show, but I just, I thought it was so nice just because of the way of like, it just forced me to envision this, I don't know, this, ah, um, this, the scenario that I think anyone, especially when we were like younger performers or whatever, the idea of like having to invent these prospects in your mind of like, okay, if I don't get these lines down, I can just 
make some stuff up or I can just do some improv or, and as someone that when I was younger did go on stage, not knowing my lines, it was like the things that you tell yourself about like the fail safe that you believe that you'll just be able to instigate once you're on stage or like the faulty mnemonics that you use in order to internalize your lines or these outcomes where it's like, it's okay. If I forget like the second monologue in, I can just have one of my actors standing behind the set and whispering things to me, or I can just like put a palm card in a book or something, you know? <laughs> um, I think, yeah, and, and I truly bring these things up just because I think there's a sweetness to it. And I think um, I'm honestly kind of for it, you know? Like I'm, <laughs> I'm always gonna be in love with anything that sort of indicates to, or isn't, is it like a, the, a true representation of the nuts and bolts of putting a piece of theater together? Like I think, again, almost, and maybe this is too sweeping a thing to say, but anything that, is anything that exists just to push something further in the direction of like polished and perfect and is an effort to scrub away any sort of like the, the dirty fingerprints of the humans that put something together, I think is a shame, you know, and, and anything that's, I don't know, closer to, closer to the beautiful truth, I guess, of the artistic practice. I'm always going to be grateful for, um, but maybe that's just me. I find a lot of things are sometimes. <laughs> um, a question that I'll pose to you, and this is not the end of me talking about Virginia. Don't you even stress about that. But there is a moment where she, uh, the, like Virginia determines uh, that the, the brightest thing in the world is a leaf being hit by sunlight. <laughs> so I don't, know. <laughs> I don't know. Let me know. Think about whether or not you agree with that. What do you think is the brightest thing in the world? I just thought that was a beautiful thing to... I don't know, even like the, the prospect of trying to throw together a top five list of the brightest things um, is, is, a, is a sweet thought experiment, I suppose. Um, there, there was also like a really lovely sentence in her suicide note to her husband where she said that if anyone could have saved her, it would have been him. And yeah, I, I also just thought that that was really, really... Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, it was like moving and touching is sweet and loving and... And yeah, I don't know, trigger warning suicide. I'm not going to use that goose that James is, <laughs> is insisting we adopt. Um, yeah, but you know, as, as I hope you haven't been, but if you are a person like me, that's been like touched by suicide and whatnot, like that sentence just has a lot of like loadedness to it. Um, and, and it was interesting to see that sentence on a stage in a show. <laughs> um, was something and I, and which then sort of like leads very cleanly and quickly onto something that, yeah, um, <laughs> else, which I think was very courageous of Edna O'Brien, the playwright to do in the first place, which again, <laughs> this type of courage I will always be into. Um, cause I think it's brave and I think it's <laughs> kind of like at face value, kind of like, oh, <laughs> which I think is something you should always, uh, go into because I think I'm always willing to clap that type of courage. I'll stop drum rolling to the point that I'm making. So she, spoiler alert, Virginia Woolf kills herself uh, <laughs> and uh, she drowns and she dies. And then she, in the play, there is then a voiceover that, that conveys her like dying thoughts as she drowns to death, um, which is how I will phrase it. Uh, Virginia Woolf drowned to death. And yeah, and it, the, it, in sort of the closing moments of the play, uh, her thoughts as she drowns. Um, I, 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 it's possible that the text itself was taken from something that she had written or was derived of something that maybe she had written about life or the experience of death or something, but felt in the moment at least that it was Edna kind of extrapolating and guessing and as a playwright, she's allowed to write, you know, she writing what she thought was possibly going through Virginia's mind as she drowned or what the ghost of Virginia Woolf would report about what she was thinking as she drowned. Um, because I think a lot of the thoughts would be like, oh no, I'm drowning. <laughs> um, that's just a guess. I, but yeah, I, I thought it was, I guess, especially with it being someone renowned for their words to take a stab at guessing and then to portray the words you think that person would be thinking in their final moments of that lived experience. Um, he's impressively brave <laughs> and, and, and yeah, I just, I, I truly want to clap for and, you know, softly tip my head to, uh, that, that willingness to make such a courageous 
offer, <laughs> I think. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, Heather's performance as Virginia was, yeah, it was like enchanting and sweet. And yeah, and um, I, yeah, was very happy to sort of like watch her speak with this, like the, the, she, she entered very like cleanly and ah, just like softly and almost ephemerally, ephemerally between talking to her husband and then kind of like losing it a bit. And then, yeah, being in this blue light and then being on this picnic. Um, it was nice to watch her kind of like, because she was on stage pretty much like the, the, the bulk of the time really. And watching her almost have to like wade between these different sort of like worlds in her mental existence and her recollection of her life through the time period that we're made privy to. Um, was, yeah, that, that sort of thing's always so impressive to see staged. Um, and yeah. Yeah. And again, I, yeah, kept just staring at Marco Pitts, um, her, her husband and father, um, she, he played, they're separate people. <laughs> um, yeah, that is not a facet of Virginia that I, that I want to get wrong or that I want you thinking that I believe it's like, oh, she <laughs> married her dad. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was, yeah, I just, it was one of those things where, yeah, I was like, couldn't stop looking at the, his like thinking faces and his like listening faces and, uh, and the way that he would like move his body when he spoke. I thought the way he walked was really cool. I don't know. These, these are my takes on Mark. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'll leave you with that. Um, I think you should, I think you should read To the Lighthouse. It's a really great book. Um, and I think you should watch the hours and tell me what happened. Um, because I might not get around to it as quickly as I want to, because I've got other stuff going on. <laughs> I, don't that, I don't have that much stuff going on. Uh, yeah, but yeah, um, yeah, glad I got to see it. And I, I'm making a private commitment to attempt more Virginia Woolf in terms of, yeah, experiencing her work. I tried to read The Waves and it was too boring, so I stopped. But I'll try something else, is my promise to you and to me. Hey, hey, so I went to see The Crocodile at 45 Downstairs. Um, the Crocodile, it's, uh, so it was produced by Spinning Plates Company, which if you remember, if you were there for this conversation, they, <laughs> they're the same people that did Shut Up, I'm a Vampire, that really wonderful, um, it was sort of like a one woman show that Jessica Stanley, who's also in this, was the star of. And then James was also on stage with her, kind of sometimes playing a character, but largely playing like a beautiful guitar music throughout her telling this story about vampiric transformation that was also a really beautiful allegory and a story about trauma and memory and victimhood. Um, if you remember that happening, it was like at the Butterfly Club and it was really impressive. Uh, so they, this is, I believe their next show. I don't think they've crammed something in the middle of the two, but so they've, they've done this now. So this is The Crocodile and it's based on an unfinished short story. Short story? It was an unfinished story written by D Dostoevsky. Um, that's not a thing I knew or researched. It's a thing that Jessica told me after I saw the show. So <laughs> he never finished writing The Crocodile and they've adapted it. Um, and so full disclosure, um, yeah, <laughs> I care a lot about James and Jess. They're fantastic and they and a few of the others involved, like the director, Cass Fumi, um, so we all sort of like wriggled from the same student theater and or like discontinued performing arts degree. That's kind of like our shared history. Uh, but yeah, so it's always a thrill to see them do anything, especially something as impressive as the things they've done and this. Uh, <laughs> so that's my rant at the start. Uh, and yeah, so we went to 45, 45 Downstairs. It was me and Elizabeth Brennan, um, who some of you may know from this podcast or from her just being fantastic or being a Shakespearean character in a garden or involved with the bloom shed. Uh, so we went to 45 Downstairs, walked downstairs, uh, and we, <laughs> the stage, which I'll talk about in a second, but the stage is there in the space and then around it is kind of like an L shape of the seating. And in a touch that I have not experienced in quite some time, which I really uh, was like really into, was like the usher gentleman that was seating us as we sort of like walked in to take our seats. Most of everyone else had already been seated and it was kind of like three quarters full. And the man was like, it seemed that he was kind of like, painting this audience bank as if it was like Sunday in the park with George. Like it was, <laughs> he wanted to make sure everyone that was in the right spot, or it was like he wanted to arrange the orchestra in just the way that he wants it to be as it gets con get, like conducted. I'm not sure, but I appreciated it. And <laughs> so we took our very specifically hand chosen seats, which was a lovely touch. <laughs> uh, and then we, yeah, sat and then watched the show start. Um, I just want to say, even like before the show began, but now having obviously I've seen the show, I'm not still currently in 
in the theater. We, throughout the show, and even as we sat there watching it about to start, the set was just like stunning. And it's it was designed, um, the set and the costume were both designed by Dan Barber, who, as we were just talking about last week, also designed the Wittenoom set, uh, that really beautiful, like, welcome to Wittenoom thing that I kept harping on about for a while. So just want to, like, <laughs> revalidate the talent of this it's a wonderful artist. Uh, yeah, it was sort of like, so remembering that it's kind of like, as the audience is, the L shape of the audience is kind of mirrored in the these very tall, flat walls of the stage. But it's like the, the stage itself is like a flat on the floor rectangle. And then the two walls furthest from the audience are these tall, white, almost the texture of like, like dry paper mache, like kind of like chunky and white and it feels like it might be sticky taped together, but somehow it's very reliably a wall too. I don't know. Whatever you've just pitched it, it's beautiful and it functions really well, especially as the story continues. Uh, and because yeah, throughout the show, it manages to like fall apart and leave like almost like person shaped holes in it, Looney Tunes style um, when characters enter and exit. And there's like little like trapdoor moments in it. There's little slots that emerge. It's just like, yeah, continuously surprising and effective, which many would argue is what a set should be accomplishing, you know, to be functional before anything else. And this manages to be functional and beautiful at the same time. Um, and so the show starts. And so James is playing this man who was an actor and he comes out in these like stunning, like big, almost like I talk about Maleficent too much, but it's almost like if you took Maleficent's horns, but instead of having them go sort of like artfully up <laughs> in like a sexy bull fashion, you kind of like extended them outwards and had them be, give them a little bit more bounce and have them almost make a really wide U shape. It was really, really beautiful. And I'll just say about James, like I've always found him so impressive and I've really enjoyed watching him improve and become even more captivating as he, you know, ages and becomes an even more seasoned performer. Um, but I, 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 he has this, uh, he has like, somehow I was thinking about him on the train the other day and he has like, kind of like, and maybe this means nothing, but he has a posture and kind of like a natural cadence for tragedy. And maybe that doesn't mean anything, but for that reason, something about his performance, like that truth about him for me at least, that made his performance all the more impressive, I suppose, in terms of like him playing this, while being like a relatively tragic character, being a very comic character and him having a lot of like very funny things to say and do throughout this piece. Um, because it all, the, the whole piece does kind of like a revolve around, revolve around him and his journey as a person. So he begins and we very quickly learn that he is a struggling actor. No one's really going to his shows. And then what ends up happening is like he has pals that I'll talk about in a second, but he ends up at a zoo. And then there's a crocodile at the zoo. The crocodile eats him. And then the, like most of the show is him inside of this crocodile and <laughs> and him navigating life now from within this crocodile that has garnered him all of this attention and celebrity. Uh, and and that being similar to the, the you know, and, and in, in his acting life, he insists that he didn't want that type of acclaim or, <laughs> or, or celebrity. But now that he has it, maybe he was kidding about that the entire time. And a lot of what the piece felt like to me, at least, was kind of like about the price of fame and what we're, what we're willing to sacrifice in order to get to get that limelight for a little while, you know? Um, Let's talk about like quickly about uh, everybody else. <laughs> uh, so Joey Lai, who yeah was plays James's character as like close friend, but there's like a murk to their friendship that I'll get into as well. Uh, Joey, I do not know. I met him once, and he shouldn't remember this because it's not a thing worth remembering. I guess just in terms of uh, he, I assume, lives such a grand life that this will have fallen out of his brain. But still, in mine, don't draw conclusions from that. I <laughs> met him once when I was like working the bar at a like friends engagement picnic party. Because <laughs> uh, that's just the sort of life I live. And he was a guest at this picnic, and we had some nice conversations. He seemed great um, and still does based on <laughs> this experience I had with him, which arguably he didn't have with me. He was on stage, but uh, yeah. So he uh, was playing, yeah, James's character's friend. And I'll talk more about that the dynamic in a second. Kate Spiker as well, who you may remember from, uh, <laughs> you, if you saw, or if you just remember us talking about traps, which I keep bringing up as that La Mama show where we all sat against the wall and I didn't understand anything that happened. Uh, she was in that and, I guess we'll always, given her strike rate with me at least, like the moment she comes on stage and the moment she does anything, she somehow has about her this, I don't, I don't, it feels somehow, I want to describe it as kind of like 
a like conspicuous, remarkable, sharp professionalism to the way that she occupies a stage space, you know? I don't know, there was some, as I said, when I talked about traps, it's like the moment that she came on, it was like, oh, somehow <laughs> it feels more like theater now. And I don't know what that means. Um, but yeah, there's, 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 there's just like, there's an electric poise to her that she brought. And she was kind of responsible for playing a lot of the characters that beefed out this world in terms of, yeah, she just played a number of people. At one point she was playing a table and the waiter serving the table, um, Another time she was playing the zookeeper. She had like a lot of different hats to put on. And yeah, each one was like rounded and fleshed out and marvelous. And yeah, it was a, a real opportunity to like see her achieve, like, yeah, nail a whole bunch of different things, you know? Um, similar somewhat in, in, in the way that Sebastiano had to play the six guys that an immigrant trans person of color will date in Melbourne, you know? She, <laughs> uh, yeah, she, she did a lot of like tricky, impressive stuff in a real variety of ways that really just, yeah, showed how marvelous she continues to prove herself to be. I don't know, is what I have to say about Kate. <laughs> um, and then finally, round, rounding out the ensemble, yeah, is Jessica Stanley, whom I've, <laughs> I feel like I've said so much about her, not just in this one tirade, but in the number of other times that I've talked about things that she's done. Again, I just want to restate, as so many people in the past have, that her voice is so wonderful to listen to. I could just like, Oh my God, her voice is so beautiful. Um, and and she uh, kind of plays like the, the, the love interest, like the woman kind of at the center of a, a relatively kind of like sad, almost like a melancholic love triangle, I suppose, because James and Joey's characters both, like Joey is currently entangled with her and James used to be. So she kind of dumped James, who is now in the crocodile and is now seeing Joey. And sorry to not use their Dostoevsky names. I just feel like maybe you'll you'll grip onto this tighter if that's how I talk about it, because that's how I'm thinking about it. Uh, but yeah, and again, another credit to Dan Barber. Um, one of the highlights of his costume efforts was this like beautiful, it was almost like a, uh, if you like took a piano accordion and then turned it sideways and then like ripped off the piano parts and just left the accordion. Am I just describing what a concertina is? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> if you kind of took that and then inflated it a bit and then I can't, yeah, then turned that into, oh my God, like, like a marvelous kind of like, did you see Johnson and Friends with that like piano accordion that would bounce around and be annoying? It may may have been voiced by Monica Trappiger, but maybe I made that up. Um, yeah, this this big bulbous sort of potato of concertina that Jessica like spent the vast majority of the show wearing was just beautiful, and she could like vanish her little mouth into the dress when she didn't want to give too much away. And the whole thing was just great in the way that it was the, all the costumes like were a bit expressionistic, were a little bit kind of dirty. Like the whole thing, like the whole set and costume and aesthetic of the piece had this like clean, efficient, dirty, like like and messiness to it, you know? Like it felt, it, it wasn't the type of thing where it's like, which I also have a fondness for the idea of something look looking quite homemade, stapled together and sourced largely from a discount store. Like this was kind of like, the shiny higher end version of that kind of idea, but everything looked very like curated and beautiful and effective and efficient. And sorry for saying effective, that is such a lazy adjective to use when describing artistic effort. Um, but yeah, the costumes and the set all looked so beautiful together. And every time someone would emerge wearing something new, it would always, always be so like surprising and it felt like you, it felt kind of like it, it felt unfamiliar in some way, which I think is an interesting thing for something beautiful to have because at least in my understanding and the reading I've done about like what beauty is, which is not a thing that you signed up to hear me talk about. But <laughs> um, it, it's oftentimes when you talk about beauty, some people believe it has to be something that you recognize from something, you know, like something isn't beautiful the first time you see it, but I don't know, the more you see it and the more you recognize it, it starts to feel more beautiful due to that familiarity. Somehow the, the beauty of this piece um, felt somehow familiar and maybe it is rooted somewhere in German expressionism or something. Um, or, or maybe it is something about even just like the way that it looked like it felt like something about the way that the costumes and set looked like they would feel like to the fingers felt like familiar, familiar and exciting and of the artistic world, I think. Um, 
was something of it. And also there was this magical box the entire time. I haven't even talked about the goddamn box that like the crocodile lives in, but also gets verticalized. So it's, imagine like, imagine a crocodile and now like imagine like a long box, like a long timber box that a crocodile could fit inside of and then plonk that in the center of the stage. And then that like gets verticalized and gets spun around. And then somehow James pops out the top of it at some point. Like the, um, yeah, it was like this beautiful transformative piece of set, which again, <laughs> that's like year one of learning about set design and theater, I suppose, is have something be as transformable and efficient as possible, I guess. And I mean that in the like, most glowing sense, like it's amazing for that principle to be so beautifully realized. Uh, Gabriel Bethune's sound design was like at times quite like startling and unsettling and charming and strange like yeah I, I was really grateful for it like it really especially when the crocodile started speaking um or there were like musical components like it really yeah added to the piece that had, which which had a lot of like lightheartedness and cheekiness to it like it had it added this like yeah this like hungry menace to it um which which in a play about living inside of a crocodile seems like a sensible inclusion <laughs> uh yeah, yeah. Being in that soundscape was, yeah, it was, there, was, there was something shuddering about it. I don't know. And maybe that's the improper use of that word, but that's the word I'm using. Um, and James isn't here to tell me that I'm speaking wrong. <laughs> uh, yeah, to dwell on Joey lie for a second. Um, I love the way that he existed in this work, partly due to the way that he existed alongside everybody else. Um, with, with James kind of being this, especially before he gets... It like starts taking up residency inside of this crocodile. There's a, like a yeah like a, like a tragic, gestury hopelessness to him that still is kind of like mystifyingly still propelled by something. Um, and that's something I'd say is part of what gets interrogated by the work. Um, but then alongside that, and then alongside Jessica's like boisterous, sharp energy and the way that she like fills the space up with her presence. Um, and then. Kate's chameleonic in and out, um, all, yeah, I don't know, her work playing all these other people. Somehow next to all of them doing all the things that they're doing, he makes so much wonderful sense in the space and and their kind of like binky bonkiness made his, what I'd say is kind of like what immediately hit at the start was like this like very like gentlemanly softness that he brought to the work in his character. Like in his portrayal of Zach, there was... Yeah, early on, this very like okay, so this <laughs> what like a, a a lovely tall man who speaks with reason and wants the best for the people around him. Um, yeah, yeah, he's yeah, he's it, it somehow felt like a necessary component in this dish that we were being served, um, which was nice, and it was especially nice too with it being like with those qualities being relatively understated ones, you know. Um, like there is a version of this show where everyone is just like pounding you with text and gags the entire time, but the presence of Zach's performance, um, yeah, added a softness I was really grateful for. Like it was a nice like mashed, mashed potatoes amidst this collection of other like surprising citric sweetnesses. I guess I don't, am I hungry? No, that's, no, no, that's just, <laughs> that's just my take. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, but in terms of like the themes, I'd say, Something that yeah, we could sit here and talk about the like the price of fame and would we be willing to pay it and and we think we want it and so many people think they want it like the number of like children that say that they want to be like you know TikTok influencers at this point we can have that conversation um, but I I think I, to me I feel like you have that conversation with the people around you I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and tell you my thoughts on that because I think you could probably, you could probably accurately guess them I suppose um, but again that fact makes is is one of the reasons that this play is very like timely and there's there's a point to telling it right now, which I think exciting theater um, answers that question quite obviously in, in what it's trying to say. And this one does, which is cool. Um, I'd say one of the things that resonated with me that I didn't expect to be included in this play um, until it was, <laughs> which I, yeah, was like startled by how familiar it felt to me. But there's this whole thing, as I said, I was going to come back to sort of like the intricacies of James and Joey's characters and their connection to each other. But this idea of at the start with Joey trying to talk James out of being an actor anymore and telling him that like, no one's coming to see your shows. Maybe you aren't very good at this. Like sure, it makes you happy, but if like, you're going to be alive for a while, like, do you want to spend that while 
failing forever. <laughs> like maybe there's another way to live your life and have it be a bit more fulfilling and it won't involve you yeah, being kind of ignored by the people that you so crave validation from. And then we also come to learn as well that his now current relationship with Jessica's character, um, Jessica's character who used to date James is, um, but is now dating Joey's. And he's, as we learn, has talked her out of pursuing the arts and instead has sort of encouraged her to begin this cushion making business. And yeah, it sort of comes out that Joey seems to be like his character seems to be going around cutting down the artistic people around him and, and discouraging them from pursuing a path that potentially he wants to pursue himself, you know, the, the sort of thing. And yeah, which comes to like the very sort of like recognizable familiar tale of, <laughs> of whether or not you actually want the people around you to succeed, like whether or not you're in the arts, like how much do you, uh, and kind of maybe irrespective of your own personal success, how much do you want to see the people around you succeeding at something that either you want to do or how much do you want to see your friends be more successful than you are? Or how much do you even want them to be successful at all? Like how much of you enjoying your friendship with someone is predicated on their misery or their failures or you never having to be worried that maybe they're going to outdo you um, is something, you know? Like it, it comes down to like the, the the basic, like the fundamental rudimentary beginnings of your connection with a person. Like does, does, does the functionality of your closeness and and the needs that you'll fulfill for each other is any of that predicated on something potentially quite toxic and hindering, uh, which, which I think is, yeah, a very, again, which I, yeah, it's a, is a very contemporary issue too, in the way that we, ever since sort of the advent of social media more and more, we're no longer just like, you know, living alongside each other and for each other. And even there have been like, you know, moderately interesting articles written about the difference and the distinctions between things like even jumping from Instagram to TikTok, the idea of like Instagram being so built for like showing your friends what you're up to. And, you know, and the depression that that causes <laughs> and then leaping to TikTok where it seems like everyone's inherent goal is to perform for total strangers and to yeah, be validated and celebrated by people that we have never known and maybe like likely largely will never know, you know? Um, so, which, yeah, is an interesting conversation for this show to be contributing to. I think it's a really fascinating topic and one that especially in the arts is a very like familiar one, you know, and one that we still need to crack open a bunch more, I think, as a, as, <laughs> as if the industry is constantly sitting down and having a conversation around a big table. That's, that's a conversation that needs to be had. <laughs> um, uh, and another thing that I was thinking about, I was thinking about James on the train the other day and on the same train journey, I then started thinking more about the crocodile and then started thinking too about this thing of like sitting people down and telling them not to pursue their dreams anymore. <laughs> um, and I'm sure you do too. Like I've certainly had the thing where it's like, Thankfully, like largely just sort of like acquaintances or people that I can kind of like see from afar, but know the middle names of that go after largely like, let's say like largely like artistic like pursuits and whether or not they're like not ready for the platforms that they're pursuing or they're like maybe not perfectly just in, <laughs> let's just say that they're not necessarily like ready for the spotlights they're trying to walk into, you know, and whose job it is to let them know that. Like, I think it, like a conversation that happened so much in living rooms around like season one of Australian Idol was like, remember those like the early rounds of Australian Idol where it would be just as it's still happening today in front of like Katy Perry or whatever of people walking in, believing they're incredible singers and then singing. And then the judges being like, who told you you could sing? Like you're terrible at this. And then the person's like, my friends all think I'm amazing. It's like, I don't think your friends really like you that much. <laughs> and, and yeah, a conversation, a conversation that certainly happened in my household and in my school at the time was the thing of like, yeah, like wh why is no one informing this person that they're like about to embarrass themselves on television? television why yeah why hasn't anyone sat them down and be like get singing lessons or maybe you don't maybe you shouldn't be a singer or like could you get out of something else what you think singing will give you you know that conversation and I have no conclusive <laughs> conclusion as to like what the ethics are surrounding whether or not you should tell a person if they exist in your life like whose job it is like I've certainly made declarations about this to people I know about those scenarios. Like I've never, thankfully never had to be the person to sit someone down and be like, I don't think you're that good at this. <laughs> um, um, 
But there have been people that I've secretly blamed for being like, that person should have sat that person down and stopped them from doing this right now. <laughs> um, but I think on the train the other day, after thinking about James being wonderful, I also got to thinking about like, maybe you shouldn't do that unless you have the solution for them as well. You know, like don't just let them, and I know you didn't come here asking for this advice, but like, but this is just my current hypothesis. Um, and let me know if you have any take on this. You, if you're gonna sit them down and tell them like, you, you shouldn't be a singer, you aren't very talented. You then need to follow it up with like, but I think you should do this. Or like, you've shown promise in this sort of way. Or like, this is a solution to this problem. The problem being their lack of talent. <laughs> uh, that's, that's my advice for the moment, is that if you're gonna tell someone they can't do something, you should give them something else to do. There you go. Advice you likely don't need, but it's there if you ever need to draw upon it. Um, yeah. Saw the crocodile. Um, it was really invigorating to see something that was so impressively itself and distinctly different from anything that I've recently seen. And even just like that needs to be commended, I think, you know, like it isn't, yeah, that the decisions that went into making this piece what it was didn't feel like they were built on trying to emulate anything else recently accomplished. Um, which I guess is maybe just a lens that I look at things through sometimes, I guess. That's not me trying to sound interesting. That's just the thing that's, I'm just telling you what's coloring my, my mindset. Um, yeah, it didn't feel familiar, which was cool and exciting because anytime you feel like that at the theater, I think it's a really like exciting, unique way to, way to feel while you're sitting in your very specifically chosen seat. Hey, yeah, we, we got through it together. Thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you for sticking it out. Thank you for not getting, you know, sick of me enough to turn this thing off. I <laughs> hope the wake is almost over. Um, and, oh, and I forgot to bring up, I don't know, it's just been on my mind. So I'm just going to tell you so it's in your mind as well, because maybe it'll take the load off me. And maybe that's selfish, but maybe that's also sharing. I'm, yeah, still reading this book about ancient Greek and Roman bodies. And I just found out that, like, Aesop, uh, not, the, not the soap, the guy that wrote like the tortoise and the hare and like a bunch of other fables. I, I looked into like the fables that he wrote. A lot of them are just like randomly paired up animals that teach you something about like trust. But he wrote so many fables. He was a slave and he was also like hideously ugly. He was just like super ugly. It's just like a, a thing you need to know about Aesop. I found that to be very interesting. Like someone that wrote a biography about Aesop's life described him in the biography as being a piece of garbage. <laughs> in terms of how ugly he was. And then in the same biography, it was like, why, because he was a slave, like Aesop was a slave. And it was like, why would you buy a man when you'd be getting a baboon? <laughs> All because of how hideous Aesop was. Um, and Aesop's famous and <laughs> Aesop's a published author. So I don't know, however you look, you can get there too. I, <laughs> I'm sorry to close on that message. Um, as usual, I may already disagree with everything I just said, and friends, don't let friends become theater critics. Um, and if they do, would you let them scroll notes during a show about a lesbian or not? I don't know, let me know. Uh, and again, thank you for being here. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Uh, and yeah, I hope you're well. Um, if you're doing anything artistic, anything theatrical, invite us along. It'd be great to come and see it and then talk about it. Um, yeah, have a wonderful time doing whatever it is you're doing. Uh, see ya.